Welcome to another episode of Pit Lane Parlay. Welcome to a special episode of Pit Lane Parlay. I am your host, Mike Jokum. Mark Dill from First Super Speedway joins me today. Mark, thank you for joining. Happy New Year. How's everything going? Going pretty well, all things considered. I, I'm blessed during this uh, tough situation with good family and all that. And I feel forever some of the people out there that are sick or alone. And it's just, it's a sad time. But me personally, I'm, like I say, I'm blessed. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we are through the end of 2020 and hopefully on to a much more healthy and, and better 2021. With that being said, you run first super speedway. One of my favorite posts every morning I see that pops up on the pit lane parlay Facebook pages is what you're sharing. So tell us a little bit about it, how you got started with it and we'll, we'll see where it takes us. Well, actually, uh, not to be a smart aleck, I probably got started with it not long after I was born <laughs> because I just, uh, I just had this gene coming up in Indianapolis. Uh, being born there and and uh, living there through college, uh, I uh, <clears throat> naturally was exposed to the Speedway. And every year, every May, the Indy 500, it was the circus coming to town. Back then, it was May 1 and much ceremony getting on the track, uh, first practice and so forth. So it was all month long and it was intense and I couldn't resist it. it so... I just got fascinated with it and also got fascinated with the history. And there's something in my soul, I don't know what it is, but I've always been felt some kind of a connection to the turn of the 20th century. And I, my grandparents were born around that time. I mean, who knows, maybe I lived there in a previous life, but <laughs> I, I just was fascinated with it. Teddy Roosevelt's one of my favorite presidents. It's it just such a dynamic era. And there's many parallels to what's going on today when you talk about the breakthroughs in technology, uh, information technology. Uh, for example, at the first Indy 500, there were 32 telegraph operators in what they called the judges stand where the pagoda is today. And they were tapping out updates on the race throughout the day. And uh, so you had, same day newspaper coverage in Los Angeles. I mean, it was a big deal. And that spirit certainly permeated Indianapolis. People that didn't pay attention to the sport the rest of the year, they, they were totally into it. But that was my thing. And I wanted to write a book about it uh, when I was 11 years old. And uh, I, uh, it took me a long time, but I... Uh, I wasn't up for it then, and I realized what a project it was. And so, anyway, I'm rambling, but that's that's sort of the background on that. Oh, I love it. So, back in back in the first Indy 500, everybody was you know telegraphing the the updates. When when did covering racing become a I don't want to say standard thing, but a you know, it was your job to travel around and follow racing. I guess at some point back then it had to go from, okay, we're going to telegraph this to let's telegraph more than just this race. Yeah. I mean, it started almost from the get go. And in fact, my book opens with 
uh, taken, taking you back to 1902 uh, near Detroit at the Gross Point uh, horse track. And Barney Oldfield drove his first race and he also happened to win it. And he was in, uh, some people will argue about this point, but I, I feel like the car he's in was the first purpose-built car by Henry Ford. And uh, Oldfield went from obscurity to a national sensation overnight in 1902 wow. because he beat someone, uh, Alexander Winton, who was widely regarded as the, the guru, the champion of American auto racing, Winton Motor Carriage Company in Cleveland. And <clears throat> he beat uh, Winton and uh, everybody was like, well, who is this kid? And um, then he started barnstorming and he was setting records and uh, he actually went and ended up hiring him later. And uh, so really from the beginning, uh, it, it, and, and, and that was the nexus with other technologies of the day. I mean, the world and America were becoming electrified and the telegraph systems were, um, getting increasingly pervasive. So news traveled at 186,000 miles per hour. I mean, uh, it, was, it was revolutionary. And that's why I draw some analogies between what was going on then and what was going on today. But one, one final thought on that. Yeah. There were uh, a host of trade publications that popped up uh, one of the more amusing names, but it was very well uh, considered in the time, was uh, an industry publication called The Horseless Age. And, uh, but then there was also the automobile, there was motor age, there was the motor, um, and several others. And you can Google these things on, uh, you know, on the web and, and Google has entire volumes of these publications digitized and ready for download for free. And <clears throat> really just sinking into those, you, you, it paints the picture for you just how enthralled um, the country and the developed world was about this industrial revolution <laughs> And there was no better example of it than the automobile. So I'll dive right into question then. You're talking about, you know, kind of the beginnings of everything. So everybody pretty much, I should say, most of the people listening here should know, you know, the beginnings of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the beginnings of IndyCar. What are a handful of things that maybe most people kind of overlook when they're, you know, that that's not on Wikipedia and, and uh, you know, not, not generally available knowledge about that, you know, 1907, 1909 timeframe. Yeah. I, well, I, I think of some of the characters and if you do Google searches, you can uncover some information on them, but um I think of like Tom Cooper, who is a uh, pretty strong character in my book. He was he was Barney's uh, buddy, and those guys palled around together. They raced together. They they did all kinds of things uh, that uh, some would consider unseemly 
but they were young men and they pressed the envelope in every aspect of life. And so Tom Cooper, who was the um, America's uh, bicycle racing champion in, in 1998, out on the Newbie Oval, which is Art Newbie, one of the founders of the Speedway, had this velodrome, I think it was on the east side of Indianapolis. And uh, Cooper won the big championship there. And bicycle racing was such a big deal back then. And if you really look at what um, the technology, a lot, you know, the innovations, some of them were derived from bicycles. I mean, the chain drive was more popular than the drive shaft in the earliest automobiles. And um, I also think of a guy by the name of John Walter Christie. And he was a character, he was born at the end of the Civil War. So by the time the era that I'm writing about rolls around, he's, you know, he's an older guy, but he's out there racing. And he just, he was like a mad professor. And he really was the on the bleeding edge, as they say, of uh, innovations like front wheel drive. So the front wheel drive, Christie is iconic to the racing nerds of the, of racing history nerds of the world. So um, there were just a variety of these people that popped up. I, I think the thing that's interesting, and stop me if I'm going on and on. I'll keep going. But, it's quite okay. Uh, you had this cultural war. I mean, the subtitle of my book is uh, uh, The Battle for the Soul of American Auto Racing. And it's really analogous to what, what, what we see in our country today with the red state versus the blue state. And in the Northeast, there were people that were regarded as elites, and they were. They were extremely wealthy. Uh, Fifth Avenue guys like the Vanderbilts, William K. Vanderbilt Jr., who started the first, uh, America's probably the, the first uh, major road race, but in a way, the first major auto race, something that starts to look like what we have today. He started that in 1904. And uh, so there, there's this tension between people of in his uh, social circle and what you found out west, if you will, and out west to these guys was places like Indiana and Michigan and Ohio. They they even use a derisive term, westerners. And when they said you were a westerner, they were essentially saying you were a hick, and that you didn't understand proper uh, society societal norms. You didn't understand proper motor racing, and uh, but Barney and, uh, and Carl Fisher, Carl is the other one that I write about a great deal. And you know, it's, the book's really told alternating between their points of view. And uh, they just had a whole different mindset about, it. they really thought of racing as a business. And uh, the Vanderbilt and people of his ilk uh, were inherited their wealth and were proper gentlemen. And it was a gentleman's sport. And it was kind of crass to think about how do you make money at it. So uh, I, again, I'm rambling, but there's so many dynamics, and I I enjoy the parallels between you know things that happen today um, and what happened then. There, you, you talk about cart and IRL. There was a similar um, 
battle between racing organizations, the AAA, and then another outfit called the Automobile Club of America. And they got into a nasty row that lasted well over a year. And the Vanderbilt Cup was even canceled uh, in 1907 as a result of that. So, um, you know, you, you, you look at it and you start reading and it's like, oh my gosh, this is, uh, you can easily see that uh, like nothing's new under the sun, as they say. So I have a handful of questions and I have no idea which one I want to ask next because I am fascinated by all of this. So I am just going to jump into kind of a, a tie-in from 1916 to this past year with the Harvest Grand Prix. Obviously, we had the Harvest Classic back in 1916. So I know everybody knows the Harvest Classic existed in, in the mid-1900s, right before World War I, and, and the Speedway was, was closed for a handful of years. But what was the Harvest Classic back then? In 1916, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. My book doesn't quite go that far, but my website, firstsuperspeedway.com, certainly does. And you can find a, a great deal of information on the Harvest Classic there. But uh, you're right. It was uh, Fisher was, you know, he paid attention and he was a man of vision and he could see that there was the potential for uh, disruption in the uh, Indianapolis 500. And so uh, they decided to squeeze in a race, a second race in 1916. And they called it the Harvest Classic because it, it took place, I think it was on September 9th. Um, and uh, it was a great day for another character who, who does appear in my book, uh, Johnny Aiken. And Aiken ended up being the winningest driver in the history of the Indianapolis 500. I think he has something like 18 race wins, um, none being the 500, but he did manage two Indy 500 winners uh, in 1913 and in 1914. And he swept, they had three events that weekend and he swept all three. And, um, but it was not well attended. It was in competition with the Indiana State Fair, which is was and still is deeply embedded in Hoosier culture. And so they really struggled to get a, a, a crowd. Um, and uh, it was never repeated. And of course you had the disruption of the war and it wasn't until 1919 that you saw racing again in at the Speedway. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. 
So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast. I like it. I always like that Aiken story because nobody really talks about him too much outside of, well, I, I, I didn't know the name at all until last year when when you when you posted the when you posted some information about him so i'm going to go with one more indie specific related question before i ask a road rate uh road racing question obviously everybody knows ray haroon and and johnny aiken and barney oldfield are there any other guys from from you know the first let's say first 10 indie 500s that don't get the level of coverage or respect that they do simply because it was at this point, 105, 110 years ago. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book too. There's so many, you know, so many amazing people that I just hate the fact that uh, in all aspects of history, that people are forgotten. I, I just, pulling it right out of the top of my head. There's an interesting guy. He wasn't extremely successful, but he was respected, uh, a race driver. His name's Herb Lytle. And Herb Lytle has the distinction, and nobody but me, as near as I can tell, ever talks about this, but Herb Lytle has the distinction as being the only man to race in the inaugural Vanderbilt Cup, which was a big, big race then in 1904, and the inaugural Indy 500 in 1911. So he raced in one Indy 500, um, and that was the first one. And uh, he, he had a kind of a checkered career and a lot of struggles, nearly died of a concussion at, at Riverhead outside of Long Beach. Um, and back then there was no brain surgery, it was just, we'll see if you wake up and if you do great. And if you don't, then that's, you know, that happened. And uh, he also had, and it's again, a, 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 a sign of the times, he, he contracted typhoid fever and uh, really almost died from that. And so I, I honestly can't recall him ever winning a race, but he was a factor. And if you dig into some of the motor journals of the day, his name pops up pretty, uh, frequently he he raced uh, maybe i'm jumping ahead to road racing but he <laughs> he also was one of the few americans who raced in the gordon james gordon bennett cup which was actually the world's biggest race at the turn of the century and it was only usurped by the french grand prix in 1906 so i, I think it was 1905 yeah 1905 that uh lytle uh raced in the uh, uh, Bennett Cup, and he was uh, his factory team was Pope Toledo, and uh, accompanying him on that journey was Carl Fisher. I love it. So you mentioned it. I'm gonna segue right in here. 
the Vanderbilt Cup. I have a vague idea of what it is because I've 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 read your your work, but what was the Vanderbilt Cup? How long was it around? And uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Well, the Vanderbilt Cup again was the brainchild of William K. Vanderbilt Jr. Uh, started in 1904, and uh, the last of um, the last of as they called him, Willie Kay's races were, was in 1906, 1916. And um, he, he it was interrupted, as I said, by the, by the uh, AAA, ACA Civil War in 1907. Uh, it was a road race and road racing, you know, back then, it, 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 this race actually looked like the European races and Vanderbilt was was a pretty, you know, skilled race driver. He uh, he he took it very seriously. At one point, he held the world land speed record. He he raced in European road races, and he saw how they did things, and decided that America needed such a race, and that American manufacturers weren't aware of how they were being outclassed by European manufacturers. And so he wanted to cast a spotlight on that. And uh, that's how that was born. And it, as I say, it went up to 1916. There were a lot of struggles and uh, the Long Island community originally was thrilled with it because it brought in a lot of commerce. Um, But after some deaths, um, if you've seen rally racing even today, and in recent years, uh, people just line the course. I mean, it's crazy. And these cars are flying by at the brink of control and people are just standing there like they're the retaining wall and uh, accidents happen. And so uh, officials in Long Island were so appalled. So road racing in America turned to more remote places and trying to avoid the crowds, which is kind of funny. Uh, but again, it was the mentality of the time that it was less about sanctioning profitable races and more about uh, showcasing equipment and allowing gentlemen operators to, to compete. So they left uh, Long Beach, or Long Beach, sorry, Long Island in uh, 1910. And uh, then from 1911 through 1916, they were kind of a, a road show. They, they were in Savannah, Georgia, and they were in Milwaukee, and they were in the Bay Area out in, in uh, California, you know, so they kind of moved around. But um, as it shifted more to a professional environment, um, they, uh, Willie Kay really became disenchanted. and decided he had done what he had set out to do. And so it stopped in 1916. There there have been some revivals in 1936 and 1937. Again, back at Rhode Island, uh, I'm sorry, Long Island, um, there was a road course that um, was purpose built. And of all things, it it was a cinder track. And, they raced there, as I say, those two years. And again, the Europeans came over and just cleaned the American clock. 
first it was Tazio Nubilari in an Alfa Romeo, and then the next year, the, uh, the Silver Arrows that most people in racing are familiar with showed up with the Mercedes and Auto Union. So, um, but that revival, William K. Vanderbilt Jr. had nothing to do with. Uh, George Vanderbilt was his cousin, um, and maybe cousin once removed, and he had the same last name. And so they were, the promoters uh, latched onto that. And uh, it was an interesting footnote in history, but again, it, it didn't. And we were, you know, the war was coming on and, uh, and so European racing kind of shut down before American racing shut down. And um, so it, it, it led a short life. And again, I'm rambling, so I hope that was useful. Yeah, no, it was. So I'll, I'll transition then kind of into my last topic, which I alluded to in early road racing, which obviously kind of was, as you, you mentioned just a couple minutes ago, sort of like rally racing because it wasn't a, a, a track, a purpose-built track like we typically see today. So how did, how did people get started in, in these early you know, road racing type things? What was it like back then? And how did they go from, okay, let's just you know, race down the roads of, of Long Island to maybe we should have an actual racetrack? Yeah, well, and that's kind of highlighted in my book. I mean, it, it, the events go from 1902 to 1910 um, and ends uh, with the first race weekend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway after it was paved with brick. And it was sort of this crowning moment in, in how auto racing was transformed. Um, it started, as you say, on public roads. And, and if you can imagine being at those things, um, these public road courses were like 25 to 30 miles long. And the way they started them was like a rally. You, um, you didn't start, it, you know, certainly wasn't a rolling start. It, it wasn't even a standing start like you see in Formula One. It was, um, they were released at intervals. And the idea was to keep them from wrecking into each other. Right. Um, and, uh, but it was like a, a rally race. So if you can imagine you're sitting there and you're waiting for a car to come around and the cars back then were given to mechanical failure. So the crowd, the, the field would thin out. I think the first Vanderbilt cup had 19 cars, which is okay, yeah. but uh, you know, you get to about lap four or something and you, you, you know, you've got half that. And so you're sitting there and you're waiting for these cars that are averaging laps of around 50 miles per hour coming, coming by. Well, you can imagine you could, you know, you could play a card game or, uh, you know, certainly have your lunch <laughs> before you see another car. So, but those first Vanderbilt Cups attracted massive crowds, uh, very comparable and even probably in excess of the Indianapolis 500 today. But then again, there wasn't that much competition for sports entertainment yeah. and they didn't have to pay. They only had one grandstand where they, they charged for the seats and the boxes. 
uh, and that accommodated around 5,000 people. So the rest of these people, it was just like festival seating at a concert. They just scrambled and got to the best vantage point they could find. And it, it was a freebie, but they also purchased a lot of stuff while they were there. And so the local economy benefited uh, and the local economy was agrarian. And so a lot of these farmers would set up stands where they had um, fresh produce and, and prepared food like sandwiches and whatever. Um, so it, it, that was sort of the atmosphere of the racing. And, the, and like I say, the racers, um, they were, for the most part, they were gentlemen, what they called gentlemen operators. They're just extremely wealthy people. The only people that could afford the car. So certainly among the private entrants. And then you had some factory teams um, like Panhard won the first uh, Vanderbilt Cup and they had an interesting driver by the name of George Heath. And he makes a brief appearance in my book. Um, he was an expatriate living in, I think it was in Paris, but certainly in France. And he was their star driver for a couple of years and uh, won the, uh, and he was not a young man at the time. He was early forties uh, when he won that race. And uh, so you had a mix. I mean, there was some professionalism among the, the profile of a guy like Heath but um, it was it was mostly professional or um, gentleman operators. Right, makes sense to me. Fascinating stuff, sir. And I think we'll have to do at least one more of these throughout the the off season here as we start up 2021. But we will we will wrap it up for today. And I I 100% appreciate all of your time and all of your knowledge. Everybody can go to firstsuperspeedway.com for pretty much everything Mark mentioned. I'm imagining I'm on the website right now, but you can get you, people can get your book on there as well. Not really. Um, okay, I'm glad you, I asked. There's another website, an author's website. As I got into the business of publishing a book, yeah. I realized it was best practice. That is markgdill.com. Um, you can go there, you can request an autographed copy, but it's also available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Target. And I was very pleased to see Blackwell's in England, which is a big book yeah. retailer in England, picked it up. So, um, you know, all the, all the, uh, typical channels, you can go there and just order it. Awesome. Well, I will make sure to put both of those links in the show notes and on social media this week when when this comes out and share it with you. So thank you very much for, for all your knowledge and look forward to talking again soon. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks a lot. Take care. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early 
so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.